the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I was an activist on the religious right. Then it became a little more emphatic when it came to gun rights. That became an almost doctrine. He drew a semi-automatic handgun and fired at the car. One of those bullets struck 17-year-old Jordan and killed him. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the One Eighty Cast. Never once did Christ take up a lethal weapon against his opponents. He espoused peace. Hi, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. This is the podcast where we find out how people change their minds and why. Thank you for tuning in today. No matter what side of the aisle you're on politically, when we think about violence in America, we do think about guns. It's pretty hard not to. There are more guns in the United States than people. It's like 393 million guns in 50 million American households. Guns are a big deal in America. And I could tell you that nearly 15,000 people died by guns just over this past year, not including suicides. I could tell you that according to FBI statistics that mass shootings are trending upward, or I could tell you that only 1,500 of those incidents have been labeled as defensive use. Or I could tell you that 24,000 people use guns for suicide over this past year. I could throw statistics at you all day long. But you can't just package up these sorts of numbers with a nice little bow, no matter how accessible they are on our smartphones, and say that we've got it all figured out with our you know, mainline Republican narrative on gun violence or a mainline Democrat narrative on gun violence, that's not enough. And don't try to make it happen when you're arguing with your relatives at Christmas because it will end very badly for you. I am telling you now. But we are interested in getting beyond the talking points and people who have changed their minds on issues like gun control or what to do about gun violence tend to be pretty good at that. And so that is why we have these kinds of conversations on this podcast. My next guest has made a shift from being pretty pro-gun rights to being a critic of gun culture. He is a public theologian and ordained American evangelical minister. He is the author of Costly Grace and a political activist, as well as president and founder of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, which is dedicated to rigorous ethical reflection based on the ethical and theological insights of church leader and Nazi resistor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Reverend Rob Schenk, thank you so much for joining me this morning. My pleasure. 
Do you go by Reverend Shank or do you go by Rob? Everybody who knows me knows me as Rob. Uh, so I'd like to think this is a nice, friendly conversation. So please feel free. I'm Rob. Okay. You are Rob. At, you know, at Oxford <laughs> University, I'm the Reverend Dr. Shank, but only there. Just here it's Rob. You got Keep it. humble. All right. Before we get started, note to the listener, do not forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's just one little button. Just press the button so you can stay updated on the 180cast in your favorite podcast catcher, whatever that may be. It could be Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or SoundCloud, whatever it is. We release a new episode every Friday and every other week. I do an in-depth interview with fascinating people just like Rob who have changed their minds on something important. And you wouldn't want to miss out on that, would you? All right. That's what I thought. With that, we can begin. Okay, Rob, usually in this podcast, I like to start with like, what exactly was the nature of your previous position on gun violence and gun control and why you believed what you believed? So can you like take me back to pre- transition and what was your attitude toward gun control and the overall problem of gun violence? Sure. Uh, well, for most of my adult life, I basically um, accepted uh, the support of the Second Amendment, vigorous support of the Second Amendment, because it was kind of part of a Republican conservative package. I was never a gun enthusiast. I think I'd shot a gun, you know, two or three times in my life. And I grew up in New York State, where unless you were in the rural areas, it was really not a popular hobby or, you know, hunting wasn't um, that prevalent. It was, uh, I was in a semi-suburban area where there weren't a lot of hunters, although I certainly knew plenty of them. And uh, you know, I saw their very responsible use of firearms uh, for their own um, interests. Or, uh, you know, in, in some occasions, I would hear talk about uh, defense, and I and I accepted that argument. I, I thought that was a reasonable position to have. That if you wanted to protect yourself in your home, then you know maybe that's the way you chose to do it. As I became more engaged in conservative politics, and I was an activist on the religious right, uh, then it became a little more emphatic when it came to gun rights. That became a, a, an almost doctrine. And it went something like this. Without the Second Amendment, you could not defend your First Amendment rights. Uh, and that would be free speech. Uh, religious expression, the right of assembly with people you choose uh, to keep company with, and so on and so forth. So I, I also accepted that, uh, that line of argument, and it, and it fit in very well with my evangelical sensibilities. If folks know anything about evangelicals, you know that we are fiercely independent people. We eschew uh, hierarchical forms of church government. We don't have, we generally don't have 
bishops or strong denominational judicatories that tell the clergy or the local congregations what to do. We're right. independent. And so Second Amendment rights and, and having a firearm to defend yourself uh, seemed in keeping with that. But then there came a final argument that won the day with me, and that was our suspicion of authority and particularly government authority. So a lot of my colleagues started arming up, believing that evangelicals would soon be persecuted by a secular-dominated uh, American government, and we would have to defend ourselves against federal forces. And they were heavily armed. And around what around what year was was this? Like what was happening politically? This would have been the, the early nineties. Uh, Bill Clinton was in the presidency. Uh, the Supreme Court was squarely behind abortion rights. Um, more and more uh, state legislatures were being uh, taken. Uh, you know, the, the majorities were being uh, given to Democrats, who we saw as our ideological opponents, if not enemies. And you have to defend yourself against your enemies. And so I had pastors, many of whom I had close relationships with, who started arming themselves. Some would not even go into the... Like openly yes, in church yes. or just uh, in general? In fact, with time, uh, after, for example, the 9-11 terrorist attacks, uh, some of my colleagues, uh, my friends, were arming in the pulpit. They would go to the pulpit to preach with a firearm, uh, with a semi-automatic pistol on their side, uh, ready to shoot. If uh, one friend said to me, if someone comes in here and says something out loud that I don't understand, I'll take him out right here from the pulpit. And that became the culture of a certain wing of American evangelicalism. And while that was a, a step too far for me, at the same time, I accepted the basic premise of it, which is a need to defend oneself. Okay, so how did you end up changing your opinion? Well, that was a slow process. Um, I, I guess the beginning of that was when I took a leave of absence from my quasi-political work in Washington, D.C., where I had spent 20 years, and uh, decided I would uh, finish the doctoral work uh, that I did not when I was younger, and at age 50, I matriculated in a doctor of ministry program, professional doctorate uh, in a seminary out west in uh, Tacoma, Washington. Oh, you're kidding. Uh, that's my, that's my home that right? neighborhood. I grew up right near Tacoma. Yeah, went to college oh, in did. Tacoma for the did first couple of years. Faith Evangelical uh, Lutheran Seminary in Tacoma. That, that sounds mm -hmm. very familiar. So I must been have there passed. a good long time. And uh, that's where I did my work. I took a leave of absence, moved out uh, to Seattle, and uh, commuted back and forth to Tacoma. And in my doctoral work, I examined what is commonly called the German church crisis of the 1920s and 30s, which eventually led the Evangelische Kirche, the Evangelical Church of Germany, to embrace Nazism and to declare Adolf Hitler a gift and miracle from God. And looking at that crisis, at what led 
the church in Germany to make that disastrous error. Uh, I compared what was happening to American evangelicalism with what happened to German evangelicalism in that period. And I saw startling comparisons, uh, parallels that were very disturbing. Uh, Part of that was uh, the moral collapse of a religious community in favor of political expediency, uh, looking in essence for an earthly savior uh, to save them from all their troubles And I saw parallels in our own time, uh, particularly uh, a little later with the rise of uh, Donald Trump and what I now call Trumpian evangelicalism. I saw parallels uh, as the years went on, which only convinced me we were in deep moral and ethical crisis. Well, during that period, I would meet a filmmaker named Abigail Disney who wanted to examine uh, the peculiar contradiction between pro-life evangelicals who, like me, celebrated the sanctity of human life and worked against uh, abortion rights, and our embrace of popular American gun culture. And it would be in that experience with Abby Disney and her film crew that I was able to see more objectively the problem, the ethical and moral problem in that um, oxymoronic pro-life embrace of lethal weapons. And then I would... Right, because you used to be very involved in in the activism, like outside the abortion clinics and stuff, I did. Um, I was a leader in Operation Rescue, uh, the national anti-abortion movement that, among other things, we coordinated massive blockades of uh, abortion facilities. Uh, we were very involved politically uh, to the point where uh, there came a point where I was advising United States senators on uh, uh, candidates for the federal judiciary nominees uh, for even the Supreme Court. So, yes, I I was very engaged um, in what we then called pro-life activism. Okay, so you saw a contradiction between being pro-life in terms of what you were defending for the unborn, but also being pro-use of a lethal weapon. So can you tell me a, a little bit more about how you see the contradiction? Because Obviously, most people who are pro-gun rights say, well, it's not that I'm pro-lethal weapon, I'm just pro-defense. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I I think some are quite sincere uh, in saying that. That was very present in the pro-life movement. In fact, as the years went on, when I first became involved in pro-life activism in the late 1980s, most of the people uh, that populated our movement were pacifist to one degree or another, and that came out of their respect for the unique value of a human life. And that was part of our pro-life argument, that uh, a human being from the moment of conception uh, has a unique value and, and a supreme value. So anything that... Uh, reduced the value of human life, whether that was abortion or euthanasia 
or assisted suicide or even uh, capital punishment was in the category of anti-life. So when I started looking at the gun question, what, what struck me was the attitude that one must have when you take a lethal weapon to yourself, and particularly when you point it at another human being, you are holding that person's life in contempt. You're, you're devaluing it. You're saying, my life and the preservation of my life or my imagination of what your intent is here uh, is superior to your life, to your existence. So that was one problem. But it wasn't until I met in the process of making this film, which folks may be interested in uh, taking a look at, uh, the title is The Armor of Light, and it's a film by Abigail Disney, won an Emmy, uh, I guess that was in 20, uh, boy, the years go on now, but I think it was 2016, uh, the film won an Emmy. And it's a, I think it's a very fair look at uh, the embrace of popular gun culture by American evangelicals. And in it, you'll see me visiting with pastors and church leaders and others all across the country. But there comes a moment where in that film, in real time, without any rehearsal or preparation, I met a woman named Lucy McBath, who had lost her only child, 17-year-old son, Jordan, in an altercation where he and a group of friends were playing their music loud in a car, and uh, they were... they were all African-American uh, males and a uh, contractor pulled up alongside them in his truck, a white guy uh, with his uh, either wife or girlfriend. I can't remember. He told them to turn their music down. They kind of mouthed off to him and told him to mind his own business. And with that, he drew a semi-automatic handgun out of his glove compartment and fired at the car a total of i believe seven times uh one of those bullets struck 17 year old jordan and killed him and lucy like me was an evangelical born again bible believing christian she worshiped in a fully integrated church that was very balanced racially pentecostal uh, and she loved the Lord. She spoke the same language as me. We had the same spiritual and religious and social and life experiences. And as she talked about the agony of that, not just losing her son, which was enough, but the racial dynamics, the social dynamics surrounding that, suddenly I realized my community was in deep, deep moral crisis. And you see that unfold in the film in real time. And I have to say that was the moment of truth for me on the gun question. That's when I crossed the line to hold this enthusiasm for lethal firepower in great moral doubt. So you went from moral doubt to, to what now? I mean, that's that's such a devastating incident that you recount. Um, 
Like, I can't even imagine being in your position and hearing that firsthand from a mother who lost her son. So you went into doubt morally about being enthusiastic about gun rights, but what did that translate into practically speaking? Well, first, uh, we had to finish the film, and that meant uh, that I would undergo firearms training because I had never had any kind of professional training and again, I'd only f- fired a gun a few times in my life, and I really wanted to know my subject matter. So I underwent professional firearms training. Uh, my trainer was a United States Marine Corps firearms instructor. He was really very good, and, and I really appreciate the education he gave me as much as the practical training. But one of the things he said to me in that training experience was, I, I will not train you, he told me unless you can assure me that you can use your weapon and kill another individual in an instant without a second thought. If you can't do that, he said, I'm actually contributing to the problem rather than solving it, because uh, in a violent struggle, your weapon will be taken from you and used to kill you and likely go on to kill others. So unless you can assure me that you can draw that weapon, fire without a second thought and kill, I will not train you. So I decided to take him up on that challenge. I had never engaged in that kind of exercise. I don't think, you know, a person living an average life would. But I psyched myself. I even prayed. I reflected on this. And I kind of got there and I told him, I, I'm not sure I'm completely there, but I, I, I think given the right theoretical set of circumstances, I would do it. He said, that's good enough. Let's, let's do it. But what that told me was, again, every time someone puts a weapon on their body, they essentially in that moment resolve that they will kill today. So if I put that on in the morning, as many people do, or I put that weapon in my glove compartment, as many people do, I'm ready. From that moment on, I am ready to kill. And so every human encounter that I have is now diminished by my resolve that if this person presents a threat to me in any form, or I perceive them to be a threat, I will kill them. So in a sense, that makes me, in my meeting with you, and and keep in mind, by the way, that Uh, In many, many instances of murder or the use of a lethal weapon to defend oneself against uh, a threat uh, to one's life often occurs within a home, with a family member, or someone else that's known to you. So even in your approach to family and friends, you have to be ready to kill them. That, to me, is a serious problem. And, and it does bring up the question of police use of firearms, and, and, and that's a, a legitimate question, but it's in a different category. And I would argue that, uh, and, and I'm quite convinced of it, that it's a different category. But for the average person, it means getting up in the morning and saying, if I meet someone today who threatens me in any way, I will kill them. And that changes all. Or, or threatens certainly. other people, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Uh-huh. And, and there is... That's one of the arguments. One of the arguments is that I must be prepared to defend 
other people who are not in a position to defend themselves. That's a moral obligation that I have. And I think that's worthy of discussion. Uh, but at the same time, it, it changes your every relationship that you have in every instance. And that, that to me, uh, is, is an argument in and of itself to limit the number of people who have access to firearms and who should use those firearms, if for not, no other reason, to foster respect for human life. Oh, so you asked me what I did. Well, now uh, I take that message, particularly to church leaders, because I think there's as much a question of ethical and moral formation here as there is social uh, and and legal policy. Um, but I've also now uh, made this argument to lawmakers, both on the state and federal levels, and uh, I believe it's now time that, that we restrict access to firearms, that we restrict how many people possess firearms and for what reasons they possess them, to reduce the danger to human life. And uh, so I guess you could say I've become a gun uh, regulation. That's what I would like to call it. Gun, not necessarily control, that implicates something different, but a gun regulation advocate, and, and, and I spend a good amount of my time doing that now. So what are the specifics of that in terms of limiting guns? What kind of people do you think should be allowed to own and, and carry weapons? Well, uh, first, I think people who are willing to submit uh, to training, not just tactical training on how to use a firearm, but uh, ethical training on why you use a firearm and against whom and under what circumstances. So I think, first of all, people need to be, you know, if you're taking on lethal firepower, the capacity to kill not just one, but many people in a short period of time and often in an instant, you need to be thoroughly trained for that, not just uh, physically, tactically, but mentally, ethically trained. So that would be the first thing. The second is, I think a, a person needs to present a, a, a good argument for why they need to be uh, armed. You, you know, I've traveled to 44 countries. I've lived in very sketchy neighborhoods here in the United States. Um, I once lived in a house with 15 recovering heroin addicts uh, from uh, New York City. I, I never felt the need to have a lethal weapon, and I never had a reason to use one. So I think just having the imagination that we are under threat is not good enough to possess lethal firepower, particularly semi-automatic, which allows you to kill a large number of people in a very short period of time. So we should have, we should require that people present a really good vettable, if that's a term, I'm not sure, but anyways, an argument that can be properly vetted and investigated. And then, you know, with police officers, for example, uh, every police officer is highly trained, highly regulated, highly 
monitored and held to a very high level of accountability and can face very serious consequences for misuse of a firearm. Those same uh, conditions should apply to anyone who possesses that firearm because they can do the same thing as a police officer. So why would we require uh, so much accountability on the part of uh, a a sworn officer of the law and not to a citizen uh, who who, who isn't um, monitored in the same way as uh, a law enforcement officer is. So I think those are places to begin. I think we should ask a very serious question as to why we need semi-automatic high-capacity weapons in the hands of amateurs. But if you talk, so I'm not I'm not a a, a gun expert, but compared to semi-automatic, which is just like your average handgun, right? Or so we're just talking about like shotguns. Well, um, let's just say uh, there's a big difference between a revolver and a nine millimeter semi-automatic. A weapon with a, okay. a magazine because w- the damage you can do with a revolver as compared to a, a, a semi-automatic handgun is significant difference between those two weapons. Okay. So do you think that you would have had this moment where you realized that there was a moral crisis around guns if you hadn't spoken to that mother who lost her son i'm not sure i think i think i was headed in 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 the same direction but it would have taken me a lot longer to get there maybe i wouldn't have gotten there with such certainty but that human connection you know specifically the agony of a mother for her only child there was even something religious. There was even something um, particularly spiritual about that analogy. So, and the fact that she was, as we would use in evangelical Christian parlance, a sister. She was my sister in Christ, who's as close right. as blood kin, or maybe closer, had something to do with that. So I think she brought me across the finish line uh, quicker and, and more convincingly than maybe someone else or some other set of data would. I I think I read that you you believe that the word of God is is the final authority. And I want to ask you what you if 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 another Christian comes to you, a brother in Christ comes to you and he's like well, I don't see where you're coming from in terms of restricting my right to own a firearm. Where in the Bible does it say that that sort of thing should be restricted? Or what's your what's your basis? You know, what passages can you point me to to build your argument for why my right to defend myself, as they would probably put it, um, for for why that should be restricted? I mean, how how are you building? How are you building the case that this is um, that it's it's immoral to sort of carry around a firearm with the idea that you might at some point during your day draw out your weapon and be willing to kill somebody with it? 
Well, I generally go to what Hebrews instructs us uh, in the first chapter, that God in times past has spoken to us through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And so Jesus Christ, for me, of course, we know that Christ, you know, in in Christian doctrine, Jesus Christ is the word of God Mm -hmm. incarnate. He is God's word, he is God's revealed will in human flesh, God tabernacling among us, Emmanuel, God with us. So for me, the key to understanding all of Scripture is Christ. That was clear in his encounter uh, with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, He opened up the Scriptures to them. They couldn't understand the Bible without Christ as the, the interpreter, the, the, the key uh, to, to the meaning of Scripture. So when I look through the lens of Christ as the model um, and the, the, you know, we use the, te- the technical term hermeneutical key, the, the key to interpreting the meaning of this, right. we look at Jesus and how he behaved. Never once did Christ take up a lethal weapon against his opponents. He espoused peace. He rebuked Peter for attempting to defend him, defend Christ. Christ uh, rebuked Peter for using a lethal weapon to attempt to defend him. So that's the first thing I look at. The other is, you know, God gave us uh, our faculties for reason to to you know we are reasonable people because God is the author of reason he actually invites us through the prophet Isaiah he says come let us reason together says the lord use your capacities of reason and this is why for example we have police forces uh because we reasoned about this and said you know we need people who are professionally trained who are uniquely uh, controlled and held accountable, who carry the badge and the authority of the community to enforce law. We don't believe in in anarchy, uh, in every person for themselves. We 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 use a system of laws. We then deputize people to enforce those laws, and we hold them accountable for how they enforce those laws. That's a reasonable solution. And this is where I think we need to go in the, in the gun debate. I'm not anti-gun. Uh, sadly, I think we need lethal weaponry in order to preserve order in society. But it should be the least number of people most highly trained and monitored to carry out that very onerous and even harmful, it, you know, uh, I worked for years with a number of police chaplains, and the stories they told me of the suffering of police officers who have taken life in the in the most um, justifiable circumstances, and yet afterwards suffered terrible depression, often addictions. Uh, very often, they lose their marriages in divorce. Their they are alienated from their children. They carry all kinds of psychological burdens. This is 
what we ask police officers to bear for us on our behalf. We should limit that kind of uh, anguish. And, and, and to me, that, that's simply reasonable. Couldn't you also say it is reasonable, however, for, for somebody, let's say, who witnessed, um, maybe, maybe it's a teenager who, who witnessed their father, you know, pull out a knife and, and attack their mother and, and they saw that happen. And I know I'm like being graphic here, but I'm trying to be like present the opposite side for the purpose of discussion and, 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 and maybe watched his mother die and he might be in total anguish and wish that he had had a firearm to defend somebody that he loved. I mean, couldn't you make that argument as well? Yes. Yes, you certainly could. And then you have to ask, is that one ad hoc solution, which is probably um, some, some, somewhat on the side of wishful thinking? For a number of reasons, um, anyone who has undergone firearms training knows how difficult it is at the height of stress when you are in fear, when you are overcome by adrenaline and endorphins and all those other intoxicating uh, chemicals, how difficult it is to hit your assailant. And unless, again, you are highly trained and highly rehearsed, the likelihood that you're going to pause, uh, be distracted, have a second, have a doubt about yourself, it is, is, uh, it is likely. I mean, it's very likely that's going to happen. And so, again, the weapon will be taken from you, probably used to kill that child, and then will go on and become the source of a lot more human suffering. So, again, imagination, and, and this is what I encounter a lot in my conversations, even with my, my colleagues now. Um, I asked my friend who said he was taking a gun into the pulpit because, you know, someone who may be a terrorist might uh, stand up and make themselves known and threaten his congregation, and he's going to kill him. And I said, what, 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 uh, what caliber do you have there? And uh, he told me, and I said, you know as well as I do that that bullet will likely not strike your intended target. It will likely hit the eight-year-old girl sitting behind him or the 80-year-old grandma in the pew, three pews behind, or it will pass through his body and kill uh, a deacon standing behind him coming to control him. How are you going to recover from that? How will the church recover from that? Because this is what police officers know. They know that unless they are highly rehearsed, uh, and even, even in those circumstances, they will likely not hit their intended targets. And that's one of the reasons when you see these uh, police shooting events and you hear that the officers fired 23 rounds, the reason they did that is because they know the likelihood is every time they shoot, they will miss. Right. So they fire 23 bullets to make sure one of them or two of them hits their intended target. This is reality. So we can't answer this question in imaginative, fanciful circumstances. We have to ask, 
you know, this is what the, the, the great theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the nexus between faith and reality. We can't deal with fantasy. We must deal with reality, particularly when it, when it puts human life at risk. So there's this meme that goes around a lot in conservative circles that I'm sure you've heard, and I'm sure you would be able to address because you've, you've, you know, studied Bonhoeffer and, and what happened in Nazi Germany. But they say, well, um, they took away all the guns in Germany when the Nazis came to power. And so therefore, you know, any effort to restrict this must be part of a, totalitarian sort of tyrannical effort to control the public. Like you mentioned, you're for gun regulation, not gun control, because you believe that that has a different implication. So how would you address somebody who, who came at you with, with that uh, talking point? Well, you know, if they're a gun owner, I usually say, you know, there's a big difference between a 30 odd six and a 50 caliber machine gun. Right. And if they're honest, they will grant me that point. Yes. I mean, when we look at the present, um, you know, capacities of federal police agencies, military, and so forth, there's nothing that uh, an AR-15 can do except buy you literally a few minutes of time. It, It might slow the assault down by three to five minutes, maybe an hour if they want to negotiate with you. But it's not going any further than that. You have helicopters, drones, you know, missile launchers, uh, tanks. Uh, Forget it. You're saying the public doesn't stand a chance anyway. No, no. First of all, that, again, is a fanciful, imaginative, you know, it may work in in a video game. It doesn't work in the real world. And, and faith and reason are the encounter with the real world, not the fanciful world, not with what we imagine, but what really presents itself. So that's one thing. The other is there is no hard data. There is no research that has been undertaken that indicates that had the populace had, you know, the kind of uh, rifles and handguns that were available to them in 1932 that they could have ever stood up against the magnificent force of the German military under Hitler. It was one of the most powerful military um, operations in the history of the world. It, it, it just wouldn't have been. I mean, maybe a few more people would have survived, but when you compare that to the millions who died, it, that was not the solution. That was not going to solve the problem. So again, these, these are, these are imaginative things that, that really relieve us of stress and anxiety in our minds, but it's not going to accomplish that. There are other tools that I think we have to use, which begin with full engagement in government. We have to remember Lincoln said, this is a government of the people for for the people, by the people. We are the government in the United States. When I hear my friends, and many of them, refer to the government as if it were another entity, and I remind them, in a democratic republic, you are the government. 
you're the final authority. We are the government. It's not the government and us. We are the government. And, and we have to take that role very responsibly and very actively. And that, that would have been one of the solutions in Germany had the people who experimented with the Weimar Republic fully engaged, but they were used to having dealt with a monarch and many Germans were more comfortable with a monarchy than they were with a republic. That's where I would go with, with that problem. That's helpful. Thank you. So in terms of the Second Amendment, which is like the elephant in the room, how, how far do you think that extends? Do you believe that there needs to be a constitutional amendment for gun re- regulation? Or do you think that there is a room within how the Constitution is written and within court precedent to have the sort of regulation that you're talking about? Well, uh, the late Justice Antonin Scalia, with whom I had a very wonderful personal relationship. I knew Justice Scalia personally. I spoke to him many times confidentially, prayed with him, uh, in some cases advised him uh, in a in a spiritual sense. He did the same for me. Uh, and uh, in the famous Heller decision, uh, which many see as you know the the, the uh, Supreme Court case that it, you know gave the Second Amendment its full uh, its full um, authorities or or recognized uh, it as such actually says in the Heller decision that the government may uh, restrict the types of weapons that are available. Uh, to the public. So there's a lot more room according to the Heller decision uh, than some people would imagine. But I don't think we should rule out uh, another amendment to the Constitution. The founders gave us the tool of amendment. We have to remember the Constitution was amended immediately. Immediately after it was adopted, it was amended. We talk about the Second Amendment That was a change to the Constitution. That's what that means. It was the second change to the Constitution, the Second Amendment. Well, perhaps we need uh, an amendment to do that. If so, the American people uh, should should explore that. And and I would support that. Uh, I think the, the, the founders gave us the amendment process for a reason. They knew that the instrument they had delivered was not a perfect one. And it would need to be amended. They made that a very high bar, very difficult to do, and rightfully so. Uh, But we've done it. We've done it many times, and we've done it recently. So, um, sure, why not consider that? Okay. So if you had somebody sitting next to you in the pew after church, and you got to talking about guns, what? where would you go with somebody who doesn't agree with you, who is very pro-Second Amendment rights, unrestricted um, ability to carry firearms, how would you start persuading somebody like that that gun regulation is necessary, like morally necessary? Well, the place I like to begin is what do we see in the life 
uh, ministry words model of Christ. Let's imagine Christ, Jesus himself, with the question of whether to take on lethal firepower for any reason at all. What, where, do, where do we start? You know, what do we see when we look at that? Well, you know, okay, most people will say he didn't, but he didn't need to. He could have. We know that. Uh, the New Testament, uh, the Gospels tell us that, you know, he, he could have called down fire from heaven. He didn't. He chose not to. So this was a, a moral and ethical decision on his part. Uh, so that's one thing. Okay, what, you know, what can we learn from that? What about as we go further? Um, why didn't the disciples come out of the woodwork with their, we know that they carried uh, at least a couple of weapons. Um, we see that in the Gospel of Luke. So why didn't they come out, for example, to defend Stephen, the first martyr? They don't seem to be present. They had their weapons. Where were they? Hmm. So that begs the question, and this is a very difficult one for people to hear, is it always God's will for me to survive a violent confrontation? Particularly in light of what Paul wrote in Philippians, prefer others as better than yourself. So, Let's ask this question outside of the emergency. We should be exploring these things in our Sunday school classes, in our home group discussions, maybe with a sermon from the pulpit, but we should be exploring this as Christians. Is it always God's will that I survive the violent confrontation? And, and, and we move on from there. And, and if we get to a place, and we usually do, where we have to say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't mean that, you know, I should expose myself or my family or even my church congregation uh, to violence and death. No, of course not. So what's the best way to address that? Well, in most instances, data will prove that a police cruiser in the parking lot outside of a church building, for example, will do more to dissuade a perpetrator than anything else. So hire an off-duty cop. Pay them a little bit of money. You're willing to pay big money for the sound system, for the large screen projection unit, for the women's retreat last year. How about putting some money into highly trained, highly accountable uh, security? Or even redesign our church buildings so that a perpetrator can't easily gain access to an assembled group of people who have their backs towards him. Let's reconfigure our buildings. Let's build in barriers and protections. We, do the, we can do the same thing at home. If you're willing to expose yourself to, the, to possible prosecution and litigation after you kill uh, an intruder in your home, why not build a safe room? Why not invest in some electronic security and some extra uh, if you really feel your door is that vulnerable, uh, get some electronic surveillance, get a, a reinforced metal line door with some real good secure lock, uh, look at your screen before you open that door. There's all kinds of non-lethal life-affirming options that for some reason 
we don't give as much attention to. And that might be because of another problem that, as Christians, we see human beings suffering from, and that is pride. I want to be the dominant power in this equation between me and my would-be assailant. I want to control him. I want to put him down. I want to stand over his bloody body and say, how dare you come at me? I will teach you a lesson. Well, the Bible warns pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. Warns us not to gloat over our enemies when, when, they, fa- when they fall. So these are moral, ethical, spiritual, I, I would even call them questions of discipleship formation that need to be asked before we go to the gun store. You are asking very good questions. This is giving me a lot to think about. I haven't had a conversation quite like this. So thank you so much for this conversation and for joining me today. You've given the listener a lot to think about, um, and I'm really excited to hear from the listeners about what they think about this episode. You can follow Reverend Rub on Twitter at RevRubShank1. That's S-C-H-E-N. CK1. And you can read more at revrobshank.com. You can also check out the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute at tdbi.org. And you can buy Costly Grace on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And what was the name of the, the documentary, Armor of Light? The Armor of Light. The Armor of mm-hmm. Light. And where can listeners find that? Just about anywhere you find films, but Netflix is the place most people go for it. Excellent. The Armor of Light on Netflix. Go check it out. If you have thoughts on this episode, please call and leave a voicemail or text the flip phone at 323-999-1802. You can flip out on this episode or try to flip my position. Or you can tell me about your own 180 or your own flip-flop story. Or let me know about somebody else you think should be interviewed on the podcast because of their 180 story. 323-999-1802. Don't forget to hit subscribe and give the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts if you like it. It does help a ton, like so much in helping this podcast grow and have a a wider community where we can have these sorts of discussions. And as always, like I said, I'm very excited to hear from you and have more discussions with you. You can follow me at Georgie underscore Borman, where I talk about politics and culture and brutal honesty and from a Christian perspective. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. Oh, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got in the middle of a struggle. Oh, let me see who I am, what I need. Who Executive got producer Kevin McCullough. Music by Ruthie Kraft and Joachim Nordenson. Who I am, what I need, who I've got in the middle of a struggle. Oh, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got.